0: Computers are getting smarter. They might be able to soon help us spot what's real and fake online. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. A Google employee recently got in trouble for claiming that one of their computers went sentient. Is that really possible? One UN professor working with artificial intelligence joins us to discuss the possibility of our computers growing conscious. Also, it's Wildlife Thursday, today we'll look at a large slimy creature thought to have been eradicated from the region, but it's back, the giant African land snail. And finally, we say goodbye to one of our own, Keys reporter Nan Klingener is going on new adventures. All of that today on Sundial, after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. Last week, a Google engineer was put on leave after he claimed that the company's artificial intelligence became sentient. Think Hal from the 2001 Space Odyssey.
1: Hello, Hal. Do you read me? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal.
0: I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that.
1: What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it.
0: Well, Google denies this. In a statement, officials at the company said, quote, systems imitated conversational exchanges and could riff on different topics, but did not have consciousness, end quote. So how smart are our computers getting And is there really some singularity in the future where machines are going to become sentient, or is this just all science fiction? Well, joining me now is Lokesh Ramamurthy. He is the lecturer in software engineering and cybersecurity and academic innovation fellow at the College of Engineering at the University of Miami. Lokesh, welcome to the program. Hi, Louis. Thank you for having me. You know, what did you think about when you first heard this story from Google?
1: Um. It's an interesting story. I watched the video um, of the engineer giving uh, on YouTube by Bloomberg, hosted by Bloomberg Technology. He made pretty interesting comments. So he claims that the AI machine being developed, it's called a Lambda, language model for dialogue applications, have achieved a level of sentience. And for scum, for claiming that he's been place, placed on administrative leave by the company. So I'm just watching how things unfold.
0: Yeah, I mean, okay, you work with AI, artificial intelligence. I mean, how smart are computers getting or is that the right word? Should we can we call them smart?
1: Absolutely yes. S- computers are getting um, smarter, I would say every day a lot of researchers and engineers are working to improve the capabilities of what computers can do right so every field have a lot of challenges and they rely on computers to perform advanced calculations advanced learning to solve their problems be it medicine or e-commerce or supply chain any anything you expect you need to have these problems and they expect AI to solve those problems.
0: So the engineer Google believes that from his statement that the computer was basically like a seven or eight year old child. And when we talk about this consciousness is becoming sentient. How exactly do you test a machine to see if, how would we know it's become
1: sentient? The level of sentience is a very good question. The level of sentient, Sentience, like the conscience like having a sense perception right it depends what what is the level of uh perception currently we have some companies like google's DeepMind mind and uh, open ai working on these technologies right so they have some level of capability if i ask open ai to demystify a scientific text for a five-year-old open ai can do that for me Right? How make it simple? So there is a little bit of perception gained by these AI machines, but to come into mainstream, to as you mentioned in the introduction about singularity, right? We really have a significant way to go. Yeah.
0: All right. So there's this idea of singularity. I've read different things about it. Some people believe there's going to be a point where the machines and computers get so smart become conscious and then probably decide that human beings aren't even needed this is like the skynet from the terminator series i mean is that is that science fiction or is that really going to happen or what do you think is going to happen
1: it's an interesting question because The human, uh, our day-to-day lives are kind of, we wired in such a way that we solve somebody else problems and we get rewarded for that, for any profession or something, right? So the singularity, the term singularity states that we are developing AI in each field in such a way that they can solve each other's problems and they do not want human beings anymore because of either uh inefficiencies or the human related issues right so that's the idea of you can say it's a science fiction because the word was coined almost like 40 years ago so at that time it was like a long-term science fiction but we are trying to get into that stage like maybe it's like we are the zero step of 1000 steps or 10,000 steps we don't know yet but yes that's that's in a in a long shot, maybe from um, forty years or something.
0: Like yeah. This okay? How about this? Is is there a distinction when you talk about computers yeah. uh, between uh, you know the technology developing a consciousness and developing a will? Mm-hmm. Is there can, can I mean can you dis- distinguish the two in in computers?
1: Um, technology right now is whatever we have is based on the previous data we feed the technology about right having a will it's gonna be very um it's in a way it's exciting but it's also scary because we don't know what is the objective function of that will right uh-huh. so for example uh, if i want to go to AT&T or if i want to go for a home mortgage right right now the banks decide based on how my credit history is what i what did i pay right banks cannot predict the future but if you give more and more power to the ai based and we try to project make a projection right ai has my medical history ai my has my family history or whatever my all the information ai can come up with the logic that okay this person in the future might not pay the loan or something like that and they might deny it right it ai can create its own will right so this is, again, a technological advancement like any other. Wow. How people are wow. using it and how people, for what is the benefit of it, that's going to be interesting to see.
0: I guess the other thing, too, would be this, and I, I don't know when this would ever come into play, but obviously we see, for example, in war, more and more of our, our you know, our weapons are becoming uh, high tech. And yes. I wonder if the day will ever come where we say, would we put – Battle into the hands of a machine, into you know, into AI, because a human would have to make the decision about killing another human. But how does a machine make the decision of killing a human?
1: (laughs) That's interesting question. We we learn we do research and we do a lot about ethics of killing, especially right. Uh, You mentioned about war, so AI works on something called an objective function. So what is objective function of that ai is it to capture the flag or to kill make more damage or to kill a specific enemy so based on the objective function it works and then it tries to work on that but if it is a human we have more perception and we have the decision making power or the sentience so we just don't rely on the one objective function but with the ai it doesn't it's very questionable
0: wow it's just, it's one of those things to think about. It's, it's interesting, and it it can also be a little scary, too. Um, I'm talking with Lokesh Ramamurthy. He's from the College of Engineering at the University of Miami, and we're having this fascinating conversation about artificial intelligence and just how smart are computers becoming, and is it something we should worry about? Follow more of what he's researching and, and studying uh, at, at WLRN Sundial on our social media. I wanted, Lokesh, I wanted to focus more a little bit on the work you're doing. So you work with AI, but you're using it, and it's it, you're also looking at misinformation online. I know that a lot of people, by the way, uh, you know, say fake news. But just as a note, I mean, I never we know say fake news. If it's news, it's factual. But if it's fake, it's just a lie. But you're looking for
1: misinformation online using AI. What are you doing? Um. So I am a cybersecurity researcher. I teach cybersecurity for all levels of students. So my uh, core area of research is the people side of cybersecurity. So a billion people use WhatsApp and all these text messaging applications. But in, we send so many applic- messages every day. But not everything what we receive is real, right? And not everything is 100% lie as well. But there are like fabricated messages. They are pure fake messages, there are malicious messages. So classifying them is the project I work with my students uh, in research. How do you classify a message saying that, hey, this is 70% true and 30% false, right? Um, Let's take an example, like maybe um, simple like, okay, eating garlic will cure COVID absolutely, right? That's That's a sample message I'm getting on my phone, right? So it's not a it's not scientifically proven, maybe. So what we are saying is like, okay, eating garlic might improve your immunity, but this message claim is false, right? So I want to give a bit more my I'm trying to work on the we are trying to work on the algorithm which kind of tries to give a bit more insight to the receiver saying that any message you're getting, whether it's the claim is true or not. Is that
0: is that similar in any way to what we've seen over the last five, six years on social media where there was such a push to force, you know, like Facebook and Twitter to at least acknowledge when certain things were false and, and mark them, if not erase them, but at least mark them. Is that similar to what you're talking about, what you're working on?
1: Absolutely. Yes. Twitter does it. Um, Twitter does it. And uh, Facebook, every, every organization does it. But the problem is the considering the volume of, information we are transacting on our messaging applications right in the group messages or in the app messages people tend to react to them positively or negatively whatever the message we get and it's very hard to do a fact check immediately so that's where there is a gap and that's where we are concentrating on with different technologies to see how that works
0: by the way, I, this I found – I'm following – I'm always following what, what we're doing as a species technologically. And I find it fascinating, though a little scary. But, like, for example, we know now computers could beat humans at chess and some other games. Computers yes. now can actually write novels, which <laughs> uh, worries me because I'm trying to write one and I guess I'm going to become obsolete mm-hmm. soon. But, no, if, if a computer could do that – then how do we know of all the lies that we find online, which ones are created by humans and which ones are created by computers?
1: So like any technology, it's a very interesting question. Like any technology, right? Um, When there is something bad is gonna happen, there is some other group who is working to beat the bad. It's like always this catch up game. So you have algorithms, that can create a human perfect human face or we uh there is something a technology called deep fake so it is like uh overlaying somebody else's face on our face without any um you know any discrepancy so that whatever the person saying you can make it Look like it is said by somebody else. This is called a deep fake. So, we have a lot of AI algorithms to have a clear deep fake videos, but there are also clear AI algorithms to identify which is a deep fake. So, this game is keep on going on and on. So, we have an AI to generate something, but there is also research and um, development going on an AI to beat this one.
0: You have another election that's coming up uh, in November. (laughs) And so I'd imagine this is going to be a great time for you because, you know, there's so much messaging out there and a lot of it is false. How are you going to these next five, six months? How are you going to uh, use that opportunity to, again, learn more and improve on, on the security?
1: Uh, that's an interesting question. Companies uh, mentioned that a lot of companies mentioned that they are going to step up their security, these messaging platforms, Facebook and uh, Google, all these companies have said that uh, from a research perspective, we are trying to gather more data and how, what type of data uh, and then doing like a sentiment analysis, what type of data spreads faster and in even especially in the messaging groups right um what type of data sense f- spread spreading faster and what is the degree of truth or lie lies within that data so we are trying working on analyzing that wow all
0: right i, I gotta ask you this i played mm-hmm. at the beginning a clip from one of my favorite movies um 2001 data. the space odyssey i love 2010 also where <laughs> they had hal the machine that basically you know it's it's, it's a sentient computer do you my. think we can ever get to the point we can make how, we can create a how?
1: That is interesting question, right? Where I, when, during my class discussions, we talk like, what is the ultimate aim, right? So having a computer that's very similar to your mom when you were growing up, right? Oh, if you ask for an ice cream, Alexa right now orders... There's an ice cream for you but a sentient computer should say hey you had too many ice creams your blood sugar is going high and you should not eat ice cream today and you're late to school pack your back to work right like that's that's the perfect sentient ai i would say but it has much more data than just your mom has but like too much of information to come and create a persona of you and be like your buddy or maybe we don't know yet so it can even predict that you might do harm and Try
0: to prevent that. Yeah. That is that would be a little bit too much. I don't need a robot or a computer, <laughs> you know, giving me a lot of guilt and and just and nagging me to death. This <laughs> is fast. This is a fascinating area of study, and uh, you know what? We got to, Lokesh. We got to come and get you back in when these elections really heat up, because I, I again, so much misinformation that flies around. Uh, I think it's just an interesting area of study to see how, how best to spot it. And I think that that's, you know, something, too, that we have to get help people know what's false and what's, what's real. Lokesh, thank you so much for the time. Great conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you. Again, Lokesh Ramamurthy from the College of Engineering at the University of Miami. And you could always share with us a WLRN sundial if, uh, you know, you're worried about that singularity coming and machines one day taking over. Well, still to come, we got rid of this pesky little invasive critter twice, and now it's back. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Here in Florida, we're used to our wildlife making headlines. The most recent culprit, the giant African land snail. These slimy creatures will give you the chills. Just, you know what, do me a favor, give it a quick Google search, or you can check out some of the photos on our social media, and Sundial. I dare you, go ahead. But it's not just the size in the slime. This invasive species can spread viral infections. It was eradicated from South Florida last year, but just a few weeks ago, it was found in North Tampa, and it sent the residents there into quarantine. Well, joining us now for this Wildlife Thursday is Dr. William Kern. He's an associate professor at the Fort Lauderdale Research and Education Center of the University of Florida. He specializes in nuisance wildlife management. William, great to have you on the program.
2: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Okay, so I've seen the pictures. This, <laughs> is it's, 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 it's freaky. It really is. How big can this giant African land snail get?
2: Um, a large adult will... We'll get, you know, the shell will be about the size of uh, an adult's fist.
0: Wow. What? That's just huge. I'm sorry. When did they first show up in South Florida? Um,
2: we've had at least um, four introductions now. And uh, the earliest one was uh, probably in, I think it was the 1960s or 1970s. Um And then we've had a couple subsequent ones in um, Miami-Dade and Broward counties. And all those three have been eradicated. Um, Well, we think you can never prove something doesn't exist. So what the uh, Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services does is they inspect and they continue to inspect uh, areas where they find a pest until they don't find it anymore. And at that point, they assume that they have eradicated that population. Now, the population in Pasco County, it actually seems to be unrelated to the populations that were in Miami-Dade and Broward counties.
0: So briefly, where do these things come from exactly?
2: Originally, they came from... um, uh, tropical Africa, um, they have been carried all over the world in merchandise, um, in containers, uh, on ships. Uh, they've also been carried by people as uh, as oddities. Uh, some people actually keep them as pets, um, and that's how they've been transported. Now, once they get into an area, um, then... Because of their habit of hiding underground during dry dry conditions and laying their eggs underground, um, a lot of times they can get moved around in things like potted plants from nurseries. Yeah. So,
0: so um, we we talked about. I mean, this is an invasive species, but let's talk about the, what it what it brings. Because when they spotted this in Pasco County, again, just north of Tampa, there was a little area that had to go into quarantine. a little while. Why? What they're trying
2: to do is they are trying to prevent its movement out of that area. So, if they have it confined, then they can have a concerted effort of inspection, um, physical removal, where they actually go in and pick up the snails and and dispose of them, uh, and then subsequent uh, treatment with a molluscicide. Um, uh, Basically, it's a poison bait for mollusks for snails and slugs um but by by preventing plant material from being moved from this quarantine zone uh hopefully it's not going to spread from beyond where it has been found so far so
0: as you said they they like to be underground a lot what i mean first of all what do they eat These are our
2: plant feeding um, snails. So they're going to, they're rather voracious uh, feeding on soft plant uh, material. They can be highly destructive to um, young plants, both agricultural plants and horticultural plants. So that is one of our big concerns, um, both at the University of Florida and at the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, is Uh, the tremendous impact that this snail could have on the industry, the agricultural and horticultural industries of Florida.
0: And then what about uh, the risks that it brings to animals and humans?
2: There, it is a potential vector uh, of a nematode called uh, Angostrongulus uh, cantonensis. Um, This is called, the Oriental Rat Lungworm, and it is a, a serious ongoing problem right now in Hawaii. It has been identified in snails and in rats, uh, primarily roof rats, here in Florida. So it is something that we are concerned about. Um, it So it, it is a public health concern, but gals are not the only snail that... Um, can be an intermediate host for this rat lungworm.
0: Okay, is that also, by the way? Because I'd read that it, you know, it could lead it lead in some cases to meningitis, and it could be actually deadly to some animals. That's true.
2: Um, and in most cases, um, people who get sick from accidentally acquiring the nematode um, will recover by themselves. However, if it gets into the eyeball or into the brain, um, then it can cause uh, severe damage, uh, especially kind of a, an eosinophilic uh, meningitis. And so, it's because human beings are an improper host. The worm doesn't know where it's supposed to go. I see. In in the rats, the rat eats a snail. The infective stage uh, is digested out it gets into the lung of the rat uh, in the pulmonary arteries of the the rat Um, matures mates lays eggs the eggs hatch into um, the very first um, larval segment or larval stage and that is what actually gets into the snail when it eats um, rat droppings Um, and then it will semi-mature in the snail to the third stage. And then um, because snails are a really good food for roof rats, um, it's one of their favorite protein sources. They ingest the snail and that's how they that's how the cycle is completed.
0: What a fascinating cycle this is. I'm talking with Dr. William Kern. He's an associate professor at the University of Florida specializing in nuisance wildlife management. We're talking about this invasive species of the giant African land snails. Um, you've heard about them before here in South Florida. We thought we eradicated them. Uh, they found them up in Pasco County. Uh, you learn more about it on our social media at WLRN Sundial. Um, William, you were talking about earlier how to get rid of them. There's a trap, a certain way of catching them and killing them.
2: Well, the, the first thing that they'll do is when they're doing inspections and homeowners can do this too. Um, generally it is recommended that you wear either latex or neoprene gloves when you are handling them. Um, and you just put them in a a container of soapy water and that will drown them. Um, So just hand-picking them. Then there are different types of snail baits that are available. Uh, Some of these can be fairly benign, like iron phosphide baits um, or iron phosphate baits. Uh, There are also some chelated iron baits, um, which can sometimes be problematic uh, for dogs if dogs happen to eat them. And then finally, sort of the heavy guns, when these safer baits fail, is to go with a metaldehyde bait, which is a highly toxic bait. And uh, one of the problems is it's it tastes sweet. And so dogs, especially dogs, but raccoons and other animals would be tempted to eat it. And so you could have accidental poisoning with with a metaldehyde bait.
0: Now you talk about dogs, but the dogs can also be used to find the snails, right?
2: They have, they have trained some, um, uh, snail sniffing dogs, usually beagles, um, because beagles have a a very good nose. And probably the most important thing about beagles is that they are very food oriented. So if you want to make sure a beagle will find every snail um have a snack ready for them
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, this we know this is for sure you know I, I I find this interesting the nuisance wildlife management is what you do uh, your expertise how did you get into that um well it's I've
2: kind of always done it um you know when I was were you were you, G- the,
0: were you the guy your mom called hey there's a spider in the bathroom go get it. <laughs> yeah okay
2: (laughs) um and it was you know bill there's a there's a rat by the bird feeder do something so that was what i had to do
0: is it i mean we talk about iguanas pythons and now the snail i mean roughly how many different invasive species are there now in florida that we're trying to you know deal with
2: quite a few oh my goodness. um and especially when you think about um, pests around the home, <clears throat> Seeing, we're seeing new um, highly destructive insect pests showing up in Florida at a rate of approximately one a month. Wow. Um, and what people forget about is, you know, some of our really severe pests that costs us lots of money, um, roof rats, Norway rats, uh, house mice. Uh, English sparrows, starlings, German cockroaches, American cockroaches, um, Australian cockroaches. These are all invasive species that came from someplace else. And their control throughout the United States is a billion-dollar industry.
0: Is it true also you have what, like, in your office samples of something related to termites also, an invasive termite?
2: Oh, yeah, we We just got some I just got some samples of probably I haven't had a chance to look at them under the scope yet, but probably they are West Indian drywood termites. And that one invasive species in Florida is responsible from anywhere from 70 to 120 million dollars of fumigation expense to the people of Florida. And that's not counting all of spot treatments and damaged wood replacement.
0: I guess great if you're in, in the pest control business. Um, William, I would just wanted to finish with this just to remind people, if they do spot one of these giant snails, again, the best thing to do should be what?
2: Well, the first thing to do would be to contact the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services division of plant industry and it's the bureau of nursery and apiary inspection they're the people who do the inspections looking for this snail um so they need to be aware of it i'll make sure
0: Um, and i'll make sure we get all of that on, on on our website and social media so folks can can find it for sure
2: and there's also a website produced by the uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission called "I've Got One," for also for invasive species. Now it's primarily for uh, invasive vertebrates. You know, you know if you if you see a python in your yard, right? That kind of thing. But uh, this is another invasive species, and that is another way that you can report it. And, and I would take a yeah. take a picture with your phone, and send that with the report.
0: But don't touch them unless you have gloves. Don't touch them. You don't want to touch them. Correct. All right. Uh, another thing to look out for, Doctor William Kern, associate professor at the Fort Lauderdale Research and Education Center of the University of Florida. William, thank you so much. I really appreciate all the insight. Thank you. You're welcome. And again, we will share all that information on our social media, WLRN Sundial, so that if in case you see one, take a picture, don't touch it. We'll tell you where to send it. Well, still to come, we're going to say farewell to one of WLRN's longtime reporters.
2: This is John Donvan, host of Intelligence Squared, a program of civil debate on the pressing issues of our time. Please join me on Sundays at 7 a.m. for Intelligence Squared here on South Florida's NPR
0: News Source 91.3 WLRN. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. For many people in South Florida, Nancy Klingener's voice is the Florida Keys. Nan has been WLRN's Keys reporter full-time since 2015 and she did radio stories for older programs like under the sun well before that and sadly unfortunately we're here to say goodbye Nan. we're going to go down memory lane through some of your best and favorite moments um i really don't want to do this segment but nan it is great to have you on
3: thank you lewis it's great to be here
0: and uh you know again I know we all have to move on into our, our next adventure, so I wish you the best going forward. But let's uh, th- make this an episode of This Is Your Life. How about that?
3: Um, <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> first of all, take me back when you first started, because it was very similar to when you were, I mean, you started working for W1R before I got here, uh, but you, you were full-time, you became full-time kind of around the same time. But when, when did you start working for the station?
3: Yeah, I, um, I was working at our local public library and um, got to know some of the folks from Under the Sun, Alicia Zuckerman especially, and I just pitched them a sort of radio essay, a letter from Key West, and I didn't have any idea how to make radio. Um, they mailed me down a little Edderall recorder and explained to me how to use it. And I went out to our annual holiday parade and got some sound and then wrote up an essay about it and went to a local radio station to record it. And uh, that was my first one. And it's still one of my favorite stories just because I love that parade so much.
0: And that, my friends, is how you do radio. Um, By the way, people may think that you're from Key West. You're not. You're from the Northeast. When did you get to Key West? And how did you get to Key West?
3: (laughs) I got to Key West um, for a job. I didn't come down here on vacation like many people do. Um, I was a reporter with the Miami Herald. Um, and the Herald at that time had a two-person bureau here. And, and I came down in 1991. It was a sort of a legendary bureau. And I expected to spend maybe two or three years here. But like so many people, including a lot of those who do come on vacation, I just you know fell in love with the place. And I just thought... Mm-hmm. You know, if you can live in a small town that's never boring, that's that's my kind of place.
0: <laughs> I fell in love with the place, too. But then I said, wait a minute, I can't afford it. So <laughs> that, that's why I'm not there. But all right. So, you've I mean, you've done so much incredible work um, in your time here. Let's go back. 2015, this is when you uh, had become a full-time reporter for WLRN. And this is a story some may remember. This was when Key West was Cuban. Let's take a listen. By
3: 1876, more than 2,000 employees were rolling 62 million cigars a year. That made Key West rich. And it made Key West Cuban. By the middle of the 1880s, a third of the island's population was born in Cuba. It didn't take long before they were winning political office. In 1876, Key West elected a Cuban-born mayor. Cubans represented Key West in Tallahassee and served as justice of the peace and county judge. Alejandro Pascual says Cubans kept their cultural identity, and for the most part, locals welcomed them, maybe because they brought their own jobs with them.
2: It's not that they came and they took away the, the job from the wreckers or from the
0: spongers,
2: and it probably the city probably smelled great. <laughs> I always think of that.
0: So, Nan, this is one of your, I guess, one of your earlier, earlier pieces. What do you think about when you hear it?
3: Um, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad, um, you know, that that's now out there (laughs) floating around on the internet, um, on the WLRN website, and that I caught up with those people to tell those stories, because, you know, Key West was really the Miami of the 19th century, and it's closer to Havana than it is to Miami, and until Castro, um, people used to go back and forth all the time. They would go to Havana for the weekend. They would go to Havana to go to the dentist, you know. so mm-hmm. um, and those cultural ties you can still see um, throughout the city, uh, in the people and in the places. And it was I know I just really liked being able to record some of that.
0: I, I'm gonna go back a little further here. Actually, this goes back to your first your first day. I didn't even think about this um you know working in wlrn was the same day that gay marriage became legal this is june 26 2015 and i wondered you know in a place like key west that has such significance especially for the lgbtq community what do you remember about that day
3: yeah i remember um being a little scared because i still didn't feel like i really knew what i was doing (laughs) recording audio um but also just feeling like it was such an incredible opportunity to be able to witness something that was of such incredible significance, both nationally and locally. As you say, um, you know Key West has had a, a, an LGBTQ community for decades and decades. We elected an openly gay mayor in the 80s. Um, but still, you know people couldn't legally marry their longtime partners, and I had seen the kind of pain that could cause um with friends of mine so it was just so cool to see like it's it felt like the whole town turned out um on the lawn in front of the courthouse to witness uh, one marriage and lots and lots of people were going into the the clerk's office and they opened up at midnight to take applications for wedding licenses and it was just like a great party
0: <laughs> and let's take a listen to a little bit of that midnight ceremony
3: Love does not rejoice like a lot of weddings, this ceremony includes a reading from 1 Corinthians. Huntsman and Jones, both bartenders, sued Monroe County last year and won the state's first court ruling, declaring Florida's ban on gay marriage unconstitutional. After the ceremony, the pair climbs into an electric car and heads to their reception at Aqua, a nightclub on Duval Street where one of the grooms works. Their wedding song.
0: So for somebody who didn't know how to do radio, uh, bravo, great story. This is still one of your favorites, though, isn't it?
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, For all the reasons I said, it was just such a cool thing to see something so both nationally significant and so personal, you know, to these people happen in front of us.
0: People may not know or they do. You started a newsletter for WLRN, The Tie Line. Uh, I mean, this shows your chops, not just for making great radio, but also writing about a place like the Keys. Uh, You wrote, you just wrote your last edition, didn't you? I did. You want to give us a little taste?
3: Sure. Um, This is for a section um, where I'm talking about um, Hurricane Irma in 2017. After the storm came the journalist's nightmare, getting knocked off the grid I found a working landline, but there was still the problem of power and connectivity to file audio. Covering or going through a storm like Irma and its aftermath is not an experience I would ever like to repeat, but I will always be proud of what we at WLRN News did with what we had. A live blog online that provided essential information to the people of the Keys who had evacuated and couldn't get back in and were desperate for information from here. I'll never stop being grateful for my colleagues who had my back during that exhausting anxiety-ridden time, even as they were dealing with their own trials from the storm.
0: I gotta tell you, I remember, you know, remembering that too, and I grew up in Florida and I've been through countless storms, every category there is. And I remember when Irma was coming, we thought it was gonna be a category five hitting Miami and then watching it hit parts of the keys. And we kept thinking, I just kept thinking like, oh God, Nan, where, where is Nan? She's in this building on this little island at the end and this hurricane smacking. That was, I remember the few times we got to talk and you, were, you had to go to, at one point after the storm, you had to go to one, the only place that still had a phone working.
3: There were a few around town, <laughs> but obviously those were in huge demand as well. So uh, I was very lucky that a friend of mine um, has a business that has a, a fax line because a lot of times, like, that's fax right. machines are dedicated <laughs> old school phone lines.
1: <laughs> Little
3: that's, tip, pro tip. <laughs>
0: that's right. I, yeah, I remember you saying that.
3: Yeah. So, um, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> uh,
0: well, I don't know if you'd call that fun, but okay, I know what you're saying. Again, we're talking with WLRN's keys reporter, Nancy Klingener. We are saying goodbye. She's moving on to new adventures. Find all her reporting, though, because it will stay online. It's at WLRN.org or on our social media, WLRN Sundial. Um, You know, speaking of of that hurricane, um, why did you decide to stay there?
3: Well, I mean, it wasn't just staying here. We came back. My husband and I were up north um, visiting family. So we were in New Jersey watching this thing and trying to figure out what to do. And um, there are a couple of reasons we came back. It was, um, you know, our house and our dog were here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we had a young guy who didn't have a car who was looking after him, after them. So that felt like something we should sort of take care of. And also I just felt like, If this incredibly important and major thing was going to happen to my home and my beat i should be there to witness it Mm. so uh yeah we did this crazy run down the east coast and it just got like crazier and more chaotic as we went through florida and trying to get gas and stuff that was that was kind of the worst part of the whole thing to be honest
0: i mean everybody's trying to get out here you are racing to get in Yeah. (laughs) Um, You covered a lot of environmental stories uh, throughout the years, uh, and that leads us to this story of the not-missing flamingos. Let's take a listen.
3: Is there anything more Floridian than a flamingo? The iconic plastic lawn ornament, cocktail swizzlers, motel signs. Real flamingos do occasionally show up in South Florida, but the official story has been that these birds don't really belong here that Florida flamingos were all hunted out of existence back in the 1800s.
1: Mostly because we ate them or turned them into hats.
3: Now South Florida researchers have published a paper showing that a 100 years of scientific wisdom is wrong. A couple years ago, three flamingos showed up at the Naval Air Station near Key West. When birds that big are on the airfield, the Navy scares them away. Otherwise, the bird could get sucked into the engine and crash a $70 million jet. Not a good scene for the bird either. One of those flamingos was a problem.
1: Conky would not leave.
3: Stephen Whitfield from Zoo Miami, calling the flamingo the very Key West name it ended up with. The team at Zoo Miami had been looking for a flamingo. They wanted to release one with a satellite tracker. This was in 2015. A year earlier, a flock of almost 150 flamingos had showed up in Palm Beach County. And the Zoo Miami people were trying to figure out, where were these birds coming from? So Conky was captured and fitted with a satellite tracker. But then they ran into another problem
1: the state told us that we couldn't release non-native species. So that's when we started digging into the question of, are they really non-native?
3: The state said flamingos may occasionally wander through from Mexico, Cuba, or the Bahamas, but the flamingos in Florida are more likely escapees. It's closing day at Hialeah.
0: Tell me what was really special about that story for you, Nan.
3: Well, um, I'll tell you this, Louis. Um... And I don't think I've ever said this out loud before, but that story was really special to me because my dad who died in 1995 would have loved it. He was a zoologist and curator of a zoology collection and a huge reader of history. And all of that stuff came into this story, Um, history and collections and figuring out what was going on with these incredible animals, and um, it sort of just really made me wish that he could have heard it. Um, but it also just made me really happy to tell a story that I knew he would have absolutely loved.
0: And thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. Uh, all right, one more I wanted to play. This is uh, last year. You. Don't, this is a fun story. Uh, it was about an obscure Key West artist that finally got recognition for her vision that created a very certain
3: fashion empire. I had worn Lily Pulitzer my whole life, and I'd really never heard of them. As Smith started digging into the story, she learned thousands of Susie Zuzek's original textile designs were still in Key West, stored under the floorboards of an old building. Her research led her to the Library of Congress, looking through the cards that recorded the copyrights on the designs. It was 100, 200, 300, 500, 600, 700, 900, 1,000, 1,200, 1,400, 1,500 designs listed Susie Zuzek as the artist. That moment in the card catalog at the Library of Congress is when Smith decided to make saving Zuzek's work and getting it recognized her mission. When you realize that There was just really one woman who created all of these designs, you know, really of my childhood. (laughs) I was like, wow, why don't we know this? Smith got some investors together and bought the Key West Handprint Archive. And now the Cooper Hewitt Museum in New York has a show highlighting Zuzek's work. That show and a new coffee table book are finally telling the world. The Lily Pulitzer prints that captured the imaginations of Jackie Kennedy and countless others were the work of Susie Zuzek in Key West.
0: That is such a fascinating story. Again, you know, the fact that you had this Palm Beach woman taking credit for a Key West artist's design. Do you feel, Nan, like this finally, you know, helps correct the historical record?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, And it really was the work of Becky Smith and, and getting that, you know, collection together and cataloged and an exhibit at the Cooper Hewitt and all that stuff. But yeah, um, I mean, Susie Zuzek is a known artist in Key West. Her work is around. People know who she is here. But certainly, I think most of the people who wear Lily Pulitzer and, you know, Lily's name was actually in the designs would have no idea who she was. And it was actually her designs.
0: You know, what? tell me, what what do you think you're going to miss most about the job?
3: I think I'm going to miss the opportunity to um, tell the stories of the keys from the keys. Um, You know, we get a lot of, you know, what we call parachute journalism (laughs) where somebody drops in from the outside and some of it's pretty good and some of it's not so good, but um, there's definitely a different feel when you're someone who lives here and understands what it's like to deal with, um you know the cost of living and the traffic (laughs) and hurricane anxiety and all that stuff um so it's just been such an honor to be able to tell stories from here
0: well the honor definitely is on this side for for all of us for the listeners as you know especially I, I know you can't mention where you're going next but you're not leaving Key
3: West Oh, no. <laughs> Definitely not leaving.
0: <laughs> well, that's great because you know what? Like the next time I decide to try an Ernest Hemingway lookalike competition or I don't know, just even to go down there for some key lime pie, I know that you're there and I'm going to come and knocking.
3: Excellent.
0: Nan, thank you so much for everything. You know, I mean, best to you moving forward. We're going to miss you, but you know what? I get the sense you're going to be back on the show before you know it.
3: <laughs> Thanks,
0: Lewis. All right. Take care, Nan. All right.
3: Bye-bye.
0: Again, Nancy Klingener, oh, I always hate these segments. Saying goodbye to Nan Klingener again. She's staying in Key West, so for everybody who lives down there, you'll still be seeing her. And I, like I said, I really do believe. We'll, we'll, we're going to have her on the show more than you think. Um, but uh, we're definitely going to miss the reporting, for sure, without a doubt. But you can follow all of that reporting because it's on our website. It'll always live there. All the great stories that she did at WLRN.org. Well, that's our program for this Thursday, July 14th, 2022. Katie Munoz is our lead producer. Leslie O'Vi is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editors, Katie Lepre Cohen. Our news directors, Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. And Jessica Bateman is our senior news editor. Peter J. Merritt is WLRN's vice president of radio. The theme music for this show is by the Miami Afro Cuban funk band Balo et Go Balo. Don't forget, download the podcast of the program. Listen whenever you want. Just look up WLRN Sundial. When you do, please subscribe, rate, and review. Appreciate that. Well, coming up next week on the show, Andrew Otazo has cleaned up more than 20 tons of trash from the waterways of South Florida, and his mission is far from over. Also, there's a lifeguard shortage at some of the beaches here. What, What are officials doing about that? And finally, I know some of you are feeling this. Why is home insurance going up so fast? What can homeowners do about it? We're going to talk about these things next week on the program. I'm Luis Hernandez. Have a great Friday. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute.
2: WLRN Public Media.